CrimeCon, the world's number one true crime event, is coming to London, now on the 25th and 26th of September this year. It's such exciting news, and I am looking forward to seeing all of you guys on Podcast Row and checking out all of the exhibitors. Get inside the mind of serial killers and psychopaths. Learn from leading criminologists. Hear from the families and survivors. Meet your favorite true crime podcasters. Immerse yourself in forensic evidence and delve deeper into unsolved crimes. CrimeCon is the ultimate true crime weekend partnered by crime and investigation. And I will be there all weekend with bells on and a GNT in hand. So come and join us. And remember to quote Mens Rea for your special 10% discount. Limited tickets are on sale now. You can pay in installments, and tickets are, of course, COVID-proof. For more information, head to crimecon.co.uk. I can't wait to see you all in September. You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Meg Walsh. Margaret Walsh, who was known as Meg, was from Formoy, County Cork. She married Coleman Keating when she was 19, after the couple discovered that she was pregnant, and they welcomed their daughter Sasha into the world in the early 90s. But around 10 years later, the marriage was somewhat strained. The couple had gone on holiday together to Crete one summer. While there, they'd met up with other Irish vacationers. One was a man named John O'Brien, who was from Tremor in County Waterford. He was recently divorced and was at the resort with workmates. He was employed by Bus Aaron. One evening, Meg's husband had had a bit too much to drink, but Meg wanted to go to the nearby town and check out the clubs. She'd asked John to go with her, and Meg and O'Brien had hit it off. When they returned to Ireland, the affair continued, and Meg would drive to Waterford from Cork to visit John in secret at the weekends. But Meg had been caught out when her husband had seen O'Brien's number on her phone bills and had rang him. Coleman had recognised the other man's voice. After the discovery of their relationship, the two decided to move in together, and so Meg moved to Waterford and took a job at Meadowcourt Homes, working as the office manager for the building contractors. After moving, Meg wanted a bigger house, so they bought a new one in the recently built luxury development in Dunavara. All the houses in the estate were large and detached, without the usual front walls giving the neighbourhood a slightly open American feel. The house was about five kilometres from the centre of Waterford City. Meg and John were married at the registry office in Waterford in June of 2005. Sasha had remained living with her father in Cork, but she spent time with her mum in Waterford, and she had her own room in the Ballinakildown's house. Meg was outgoing and very friendly, and was devoted to her family. Neighbours from Dunavara said she and her husband John kept to themselves, 
They'd nod and say a polite hello to those in the estate, just like most of the other neighbours. It was a newer estate, less established, and only five years old, so that was quite common, and people tended to drive to the shops or work. Meg and John were, however, very well known at the nearby hotel, the Woodlands, and the bar attached to it. They did most of their socialising there. By 2006, Meg had lived in Waterford for ten years, when on Sunday, the 1st of October, she went missing from her home in Ballinakill Downs. She had left her house at half past eight on the 30th of September and had spent Saturday night out with friends at the Woodlands Hotel's Brasscock Bar on the Dunmore Road. Early reports indicated that Meg had left her friends at 1am on Sunday morning. When she was last seen, Meg had on brown jeans and a brown jumper with a light stripe on it. She had not been seen since leaving the bar, and she told friends she'd ring the next day, but she never did. Then, Meg didn't turn up for work on Monday the 2nd of October. Her workmates made a number of calls to Meg, but they couldn't get her on the line, and a colleague contacted Gardy at 11am. Police immediately began a search for the missing woman. Gardy interviewed friends and family to determine Ms. Walsh's state of mind at the time she went missing. All had said Meg had been in good form before she disappeared. Then, at five past one on Wednesday morning, Meg's silver Mitsubishi Charisma was found, parked in the car park of a popular pub called Uluru, about two kilometres from the missing woman's home. The car had last been seen by a neighbour in Ballinakill Downs on Sunday evening, but it was unknown whether Meg had been driving it at the time. On Thursday the 5th, there was an extensive search of the Dunmore Road area of Waterford City, close to the Woodlands Hotel, and Ard Keen, near the Uluru car park. Meg's Ballinakill home was sealed off that day too, and the Technical Bureau spent two days there, searching for any indication of where Meg had gone. Gardy set up checkpoints on the Dunmore Road to see if anyone who passed regularly had seen anything of note. An unmarked Garda car was on patrol in the estate, keeping note of who came into or left the area. But still, there was no sign of Meg. On Friday the 6th of October, Gardy said they were looking for a man who had been seen driving Meg's silver Mitsubishi Charisma two days after she had disappeared. The car was parked by the man at the car park outside Waterford on the night of Tuesday the 3rd of October. Gardy were trying to both identify the man and figure out the movements of the car over that two-day period. CCTV from the area was collected and examined and the car was forensically examined. Gardy found one of the mats from Meg's car discarded in a field nearby. It had visible bloodstains on it. The field was cordoned off for a technical examination. It was searched by 40 Gardy on Wednesday and Thursday. At that time, the press reported that nothing besides this mat was found. On Saturday, Gardy conducted a major search in Waterford Harbour and the Shore Estuary and along coastal areas in Dunmore East and Passage East. Superintendent Dave Sheehan commented that Meg made sure to always tell her friends and family where she would be and that her movements were always quite routine. 
her bank accounts and mobile phone had not been used or accessed since the 1st of October. Meg's friends told papers on Sunday, quote, It just isn't Meg's form to disappear like this, not without telling someone where she would be. That's why we're also worried about what has happened to her, end quote. Meg's brother James spoke to the Evening Herald on Tuesday the 19th. He said, quote, For her to leave here and not contact anyone, not show up for work, it's just unbelievable. She would have called her daughter Sasha. She wouldn't allow her to go through all this worry, and she would have called me, but there's been nothing, end quote. Meanwhile, Gardie were still trying to see if the bloodstained mat found in the field was linked to Meg. Later, Superintendent Dave Sheehan said that, quote, at this stage, our hope would be panning off, to be honest, but we will stay with this until we find Margaret Walsh. There is a person out there with information which we believe can progress the investigation. That person should come forward, end quote. Gardie still had no positive indication of where Meg might be, and they told the press that they were now deeply concerned. The same day, the Evening Herald also revealed that Meg Walsh had indeed been in touch with the Gardie before she went missing. She had rang her local station only two days before her disappearance in a distressed state, saying that a named man who was known to her had been making serious threats against her but she didn't want any action taken against this man at the time. The paper reported that this man was now the prime suspect in the case, which was expected to be upgraded to that of murder, and he was under supervision by Gardie at a local hotel. It was reported that there were fears for the man's safety. He'd first been contacted by Gardie 24 hours after Meg went missing, and had been informally interviewed and allowed to return home. He was suspected of carrying out two serious assaults on Meg Walsh in the previous few months, with Meg once sustaining injuries to her face after being kicked. Meg had also been admitted to hospital for minor injuries after another assault. The complaint was her second to the Gardie, having called them two weeks before. That time, Meg and a female friend had called into their local station to make a complaint about the named man. Again, she requested that no action be taken, saying she just wanted the matter on the record, and said she feared that there may be a repeat of the behaviour. What's more, on the Friday before she went missing, Meg told her work colleagues that she had fears for her safety, and that if she didn't turn up for work on Monday morning, they should call the Gardie. The next day, 300 people joined Gardie and the Defence Forces to search for Meg, concentrating on a five-mile radius around her home. Landowners and fishermen were amongst the searchers. The Coast Guard, Waterford Subaqua Club, and members of the Defence Forces and Civil Defence also turned out to help. An area around the Dunmore Road out towards Dunmore East was searched. Tidal areas off the Waterford coast were examined, and Gardie appealed for help to search the coast between Waterford and Dunmore East. Sailors and fishermen were being consulted about the tidal patterns in the area, given the strong tidal current present in Waterford Harbour. On Thursday the 12th, Gardie released pictures of Meg's Mitsubishi car in the hopes that someone would remember having seen it between her disappearance and its recovery. 
It was also reported that some of Meg's blood was found on the passenger side of the car. Waste ground all around her home continued to be searched and more officers were drafted in from surrounding counties to help in the search. On Friday the 13th of October, Meg's daughter Sasha and her brother James issued a joint statement at a Garda press conference. They said, quote, We are desperate to find her and have her back. This situation is like a horror show. How anyone could hurt Meg in any way is beyond belief. In absence of any contact, we can only suspect that something has happened. At this stage, we are appealing to any person that knows of Meg's whereabouts to let us know where she is. End quote. John O'Brien, Meg's husband, also issued an appeal, but he did not attend the press conference in person. Gardy had thought that Mr. O'Brien would be there to make his statement, but he would not be answering questions. But in the end, he didn't go, and was represented by his sisters. Sasha, Meg's 17-year-old daughter, told the press that she had spent the weekend with her mother on the 18th of September. They'd gone shopping and had had lunch together, but Sasha had gone back to her father's in County Cork to go back to school. Meg had been scheduled to visit her the weekend of the 7th of October. Neither Sasha nor James had known anything about the recently reported contact that Meg had had with Gardee. John's mother said her son was in a state of deep shock. Quote, John had always been quiet and he's not talking about Meg. He's really upset and not sleeping or eating. John is deeply concerned about her and is as puzzled as everyone else about her disappearance. My son is trying to cope as best he can, but it's not easy, as his life has been turned upside down. He cannot stay in their home because Gardier are in there. He even tried last Friday night to go back in, but was turned away. Gardier have his car, too, end quote. On Sunday, the 15th of October, the Sunday World reported that blood-stained items had been found inside Meg's home, and a thorough technical examination was carried out in the house for evidence. Then, at 3pm on Sunday the 15th, Gardie finally recovered Meg. The man who made the discovery was one of Meg's colleagues. Her body had been spotted floating in the river shore and was retrieved by men on a boat which had been hired by her employer. She was spotted at about 2.20pm. A crowd gathered along the quay near to the spot. Just an hour after her body was removed from the shore, James identified it as his sister's body. Then family and searchers gathered at the Woodlands Hotel, which had become a sort of headquarters for those looking for Meg. But with that no longer their objective, they sat and waited to hear from the city morgue, where the post-mortem examination on Meg was taking place. They wanted to know how it was that she had died. It was determined that Meg had died of severe trauma injuries to her upper body. She had been struck at least twice on her head. One of the blows had landed on her right temple and had killed her. A blunt instrument was thought to have been used in the attack on her. The Evening Herald reported that Gardie believed her attacker had burned her clothing after killing Meg in order to cover their trail. Gardie said that they had not established a motive yet, 
but continued to appeal for the person who knew what had happened to Meg to come forward. They were also looking for Meg's keys and her mobile phone. After the discovery of her body, Gardie cordoned off the area around the clock tower on the quays in Waterford City, and boats were dispatched to the area where Meg's body was discovered. A reconstruction of the movements of Meg's car was staged on Monday the 16th. Gardie made an effort to ensure the accuracy of the car, down to having her number plate replicated. Locals gathered alongside waiting media at the Dunmore Road and watched silently as the car was driven the route Gardie suspected it had taken to the car park at the Uluru pub. It was hoped that the reconstruction would jog people's memories of what had occurred between 7am on Sunday the 1st of October and 1am on Wednesday October 4th and lead to new evidence in the case. Gardie also continued to appeal for information regarding Meg's keys, key fob, and her phone, a Motorola Razor. They suspected that the items had been thrown in the river shore at the same time as Meg's body had been dumped there. A Garda sub-aqua unit was brought in to comb the riverbed near to the city centre. It was also revealed that Gardie now thought Meg had been stripped and then had possibly been wrapped in a carpet or mat, which was then tied up before being put into the river. It was thought that a mat had weighed her body down, resulting in the delay in finding her. On Tuesday the 17th, specialist dog units from the UK were brought in to aid in the search for forensic evidence, such as blood or tissue. Gardie had not yet established the exact location of Meg's death. Garda sources told the Irish Independent that the injuries Meg sustained around the time of her death indicated that she had struggled and fought in the course of the attack. They described this attack as a, quote, frenzied, merciless assault. But they noted that as a result of this attack, it was possible that DNA from her assailant might remain on her body. Forensic experts were therefore carrying out tests on her remains to determine if any DNA material had been left behind. It was also likely that her attacker might show injuries from Meg's attempt to defend herself. A detailed search at the home in Ballinakill Downs continued. A court order directed that they had to be finished their work by half past three on Wednesday the 18th. A number of items had been removed and sent to Dublin for analysis. The following day, Gardie revealed that they were looking for a man who had been captured on CCTV at the Uluru car park. The figure of a man wearing a hooded top was seen in the footage parking Meg's car and then quickly walking away. The man's face was not visible. Papers reported that some Gardie said that they could tell that given the man's size and height, This was not the one who police believed was their prime suspect in Meg's murder. In addition, Gardie had heard from a number of workmates of their prime suspect and had been told that he was in work at the time the car was parked outside the pub. Other Garda sources, however, dismissed the idea that two suspects were being sought as purely speculative. It was thought that an arrest could be imminent. The Evening Herald reported that it was also believed by police that the prime suspect in the case might be present at Meg's removal on Wednesday evening and her funeral the following day in her home place of Killavulla, County Cork. 
Cormac Looney, writing for the paper, said that his arrest was expected to take place after the funeral had concluded. Superintendent Sheehan was asked by the Irish Independent if he expected the suspect would be there. The superintendent said, quote, I don't know, that's being honest. I am really appealing to that person to come forward because I am satisfied that when people make tragic mistakes, it takes great bravery and courage for that person to put right the wrong they have done. They should come forward and assist us with our investigation, end quote. Meg's funeral took place on Thursday the 19th of October in St. Nicholas's Church near Formoy. The chief mourners were her daughter, brother and ex-husband, Coleman Keating, who sat in the front pew. Meg's current husband, John O'Brien, sat across the aisle with his sisters. The celebrant at the Requiem Mass said that the community had felt for the past few days they had been in a nightmare and it just wanted to wake up. Meg's brother spoke at the service too. James said his sister had been killed in the most violent way imaginable. She had been his rock, someone to talk to about anything, but she had not wanted to burden anyone with her own problems. He thanked Meg's former husband for spending the previous two weeks in Waterford aiding in the search. Her new friends in Waterford had also been there for her, searching alongside Gardy. They all got his praise. James told the hundreds gathered in the church that one guard in particular had gone to great lengths during the search and had, as a result, broken his leg, requiring surgery. Still, James had seen the officer at the funeral home on crutches. He'd turned up for Meg. James said, quote, That's typical of the guarded determination, fire, heart, and guts. Of Meg, he said, quote, She was a gorgeous, sweet, caring woman. She was well able to speak for herself, but at this stage she can't, so I'm trying to do the best I can for her. This episode is sponsored in part by our friends Manscaped. Manscaped is the global leader for below-the-waist grooming, To ensure you have the best tools for your family jewels, visit manscaped.com and use the code MENS for 20% off and free international shipping. The Manscaped Performance Package is the ultimate men's grooming bundle. Included in this new package is the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Trimmer, which is waterproof and uses a 900 RPM motor-powered 360-degree rotary dual-blade system. Look guys, 79% of partners polled admitted that long nose hair is a major turnoff. Why not use the best tools for the job here? And 100% of Sinead's from Mens Rea say that ear hairs remind her of her dad. And listen, that can't be a good thing. Let's keep that ish in order, lads. This bundle also includes the Lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, the best trimmer on the market for your man things. Remember, it has that advanced skin safe technology to reduce grooming accidents, so there's no need to be shy about it. And let's not forget their famous liquid formulations, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Ball Toner to maximize your ball pampering routine. Listen, I'm not a man, but if I was, I'd be taking care of my junk like it was a treasure. To top it off, when you buy the performance package, you now get two free gifts. 
the Manscaped boxers and the Shed travel bag. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code MENS at manscaped.com. Also, every purchase at manscaped.com goes towards contributions made to the Testicular Cancer Society to bring awareness to testicular cancer, men's health and early cancer detection. So head to manscaped.com and use the code MENS to get 20% off and free shipping. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use the code MENS. Your balls will thank you. On the morning of Friday, the 20th of October, Gertie arrived outside a house in Tremor at half past nine in the morning and made an arrest in the case. John O'Brien, Meg's husband, was arrested under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act and brought to Ballybrick and Garda Station for questioning. He was released that evening without charge after his 12 hour period of detention was finally up. Family members had sat in the car outside the station through the day, and just after 9pm when he was released, he was ushered out to the waiting car. He made no comment to the group of reporters who had waited for him to leave. A search in the river continued, looking for a blunt weapon thought to have been used in the attack on Meg. A number of divers searched an area off the North Wharf in Waterford, near Ferrybank, just across the river from the quay at the clock tower. It was thought that the weapon could be something like a hatchet, hammer, or mallet. Gardie said they were in the process of analysing forensic evidence, DNA, and witness statements in the case, work which was expected to take a number of weeks to complete. They were also hoping to locate a third scene, where they believed that Meg had been killed. Some derelict buildings near to the bus depot on the river in Waterford was visited by the investigators in the case. John O'Brien was handed back the keys to the home he had shared with Meg that weekend, and he moved back in from his sister's house where he had been staying while the search in the house was ongoing. Gardy continued their searches in the Ballinakill area of Waterford City, the River Shore and Waterford Harbour, and the areas along the Keys in the hopes of locating more evidence or the place where Meg had been killed. In the last week of November, an ad was placed in a local Waterford newspaper thanking friends on behalf of John and his family for their support after the loss of Meg. Then, on Monday the 27th, Meg's Month Mind Memorial Mass was held at the Church of St. Joseph and St. Beneldus in Waterford. As John had arrived at the church, he had spotted a group of news photographers waiting outside. O'Brien had approached the group and yelled at them, quote, this is not a fucking circus, end quote. The scene during the service was similar to that during her Requiem Mass, with John O'Brien sitting on one side of the church and Meg's daughter and ex-husband on the other. On the morning of Saturday the 9th of December, John O'Brien was arrested and brought in for questioning once again. Garda sources told the press that Mr. O'Brien had been polite but firm during the questioning saying that there was nothing more he could tell the officers about what had occurred that night. He was released without charge again that evening. In March of 2007, Gurdy completed their file on the case and sent it to the office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. The file was thought to contain hundreds of witness statements, alongside CCTV and reports of medical and forensic evidence. Then, Three months later, and eight months after Meg had been killed, 
On Friday, the 22nd of June, John O'Brien appeared at Waterford District Court before Judge Hartnett, charged with the murder of Meg Walsh. John O'Brien covered his head as he was brought into the courtroom. He made no comment when the charge of killing Meg at an unknown location on a date between the 1st of October and the 15th of October was put to him. He had been arrested at his home at a quarter past nine on Thursday evening and formally charged just after 11pm. Meg's daughter Sasha and her former husband were present at the short hearing alongside John's sisters and mother who also came to the courthouse. John O'Brien was granted legal aid and remanded in custody. Eventually, he was allowed out on bail. By the end of July, O'Brien's trial was set to take place in January of the following year, 2008. It was to be heard before the Central Criminal Court, sitting in Waterford. However, in September, O'Brien's legal team made an application to have the case heard in Dublin rather than in Waterford. After this, the trial was set to begin in April of 2008 in the Four Courts in Dublin. It opened on Monday the 14th of April before Mr Justice Barry White and a jury of seven women and five men. John O'Brien entered a plea of not guilty to the charge. Dennis Von Buckley gave the opening speech on behalf of the prosecution. He told the jury that the state's case was based substantially on circumstantial evidence and that they would hear that the night Meg died, she, the defendant, and another man, Owen Walsh, had been out drinking together. They had all gone back to Meg's house until an argument occurred. John O'Brien had kicked the other man out. They would also hear that John O'Brien had not reported his wife missing. When Meg was discovered two weeks later in the River Shore, it was clear she had died due to blunt force trauma to her head. The following day, the court heard from Meg Walsh's GP. Dr. Bernadette O'Leary recalled that Meg had come to the surgery on the 22nd of September 2006 and told the doctor that she had been assaulted two days before. Dr. O'Leary observed bruising and swelling on Meg's hands and on her right shoulder. Meg was very distressed and Dr. O'Leary had advised her to go to the Gardee. Then the court heard from Owen Walsh. He was a part of a regular crowd that socialised at the Woodlands Hotel and on the 30th of September he had been out at the hotel drinking with Meg and John O'Brien. Mr. Walsh said that his wife was away that weekend and he'd arrived at the hotel at around 10pm. They'd all stayed in the bar until closing and then moved into the hotel lobby where drinks continued to be served to them. Both he and Meg were in good form. On the stand he described their demeanour as merry. John O'Brien didn't seem drunk and was quieter. At around 4am the three of them returned to Meg and O'Brien's home for a nightcap. Meg had asked O'Brien if it would be okay for Owen to stay the night and O'Brien had agreed. Then Owen told the court that the three had headed upstairs. Meg was showing him her daughter's room where he'd be staying and O'Brien went somewhere else upstairs, possibly to the bathroom. After Meg had shown him the room, they said goodnight and she had kissed him on the mouth. He had kissed her back. In court, it was described as more of a quick peck, definitely closed-mouthed. But John O'Brien had walked in just then and asked what was going on. Owen Walsh told the court he had responded to O'Brien saying that the kiss was nothing, that it was just the drink, but O'Brien yelled at him to get out of the house. 
It was an aggressive reaction, he said. Walsh said he had left at about 8am, gone home, and spent the rest of the day in bed. Mr. Walsh told the court that the following day, the Monday, he got a call from O'Brien telling him that Meg had not been seen since Sunday the 1st and she hadn't turned up for work. O'Brien had asked if Meg was with him, but she wasn't. Mr. Walsh agreed that the guardie had asked him for the clothes he'd been wearing that night and he'd handed them over. Traces of makeup had been found on his leather jacket and on the inside of the front of his shirt. He had no explanation for how it had ended up there. Walsh said he usually left only the top two buttons undone on his shirts. After this, Lorraine Cudahy took the stand. She was Meg's friend, having also met her at the Woodlands Hotel, and she'd known her for three years. She'd texted Meg on the morning of the 1st of October to check in and see how the rest of the night had been, but Meg didn't respond to her texts. Lorraine told the court that she must have rang Meg a hundred times between seven and midnight that night. Lorraine was so worried that she and her partner had walked over to Meg's house. The curtains were closed and a light was on in the living room. Meg's car wasn't in the drive, but Mr. O'Brien's was. Then, Meg's employer, Noel Power, told the court how Meg had failed to turn up for work on the 2nd of October. Mr. Power had contacted his wife, Karen, and the site manager, Patrick Madigan. They went to Meg's house to see if she was there, but it appeared that no one was at home. When they got back to the office, Mr. Power rang a friend who was a Garda and explained the situation and said he was concerned about Meg's well-being. In court the following day, Sasha Keating, Meg's daughter, gave evidence in the case. She told the court that the previous July, after a lot of drinking, she had sent a text message to the defendant's sister saying she was worried for her stepfather, John, and she wanted to help him, but she needed to know what had happened to her mother. Sasha explained that at the time she'd been worried that the defendant might harm himself and he might die before she ever found out what had happened to Meg. She told the court that she regretted sending the message later. Sasha also told the court about getting a phone call from Mr. O'Brien on the 14th of October to tell her that he had the keys to the house back and she could come over and collect any of her things she needed from the room she used there. Sasha had asked if she could also take some of her mother's things and O'Brien had agreed, but her mother's body had been found the next day and so Sasha didn't go to the house for two weeks. Harry Condon was the man who had found Meg's body floating in the river shore. He was a subcontractor at Meadowcourt Homes. Mr. Condon told the jury that he had launched his boat on the afternoon of the 15th of October at around noon, and after some time he'd seen a man on the shore in a distressed state pointing into the water. Then he'd seen Meg Walsh's body. He knew it was her because they worked together and he recognised her by her hair. A neighbour who lived directly behind Meg's house gave evidence and said that while he was eating breakfast in his kitchen around noon on the 1st of October, he'd seen Meg Walsh in an upstairs window of her house. It looked as if she was putting away clothes. He hadn't seen her since. Another neighbour, Eric Fitzsimons, said he and his wife had been in their car on the morning of the 1st of October. His wife was driving their son to rugby practice. Mr. Fitzsimons had seen John O'Brien driving out of a small road that led to waste ground in the area, and the witness recalled he'd made a comment to his wife that he hoped John wasn't out dumping rubbish. 
a number of people who had been out socialising on the night of the 30th of September and into the early morning hours of the 1st of October in the Woodlands Hotel gave evidence of seeing both Meg and the defendant out that night. On the fourth day of the trial, the jury were shown CCTV of Meg's silver Mitsubishi car. It was from the 2nd of October, from the cameras in the Uluru car park. The footage showed the car being parked at around 10pm and a person getting out of the driver's side of the car and walking to the back of it. The rear indicator lights flashed on and off as if the car was locking. Garda Allen White told the court that he had noticed the car on the 4th of October and he'd then gone into the pub and reviewed the CCTV. Mr. Sebastian Danhell had also seen the silver car parked there. He worked at a pizza shop that backed out onto the car park. He told the court that he had first noticed the Mitsubishi on the 2nd of October between 5 and 6 p.m. It had been parked quite close to the back door of his shop. When Mr. Dannell left the shop at 8 p.m. to make deliveries, he saw it again, but this time it was parked in a different spot and was facing towards the building. The witness had seen a man sitting in the driver's seat, and it looked like he was looking for something in the passenger seat of the car. Mr. Dannell thought that the figure was of a man, but he could give no further details about him. The witness said he'd seen the car once more at about 10pm and again it was parked in a different spot. The fact that the car had been in a number of different positions in the car park was what had made him remember it. Then Sergeant Eric Garavan testified that he had spoken with Meg Walsh at Waterford Garda Station on the 22nd of September. She alleged that her husband had assaulted her a few days before, but told the guard that she didn't want to proceed with a complaint against him at that time. Gerard O'Herlihy, a solicitor in Waterford, then took the stand and described how on the 25th of September, Meg Walsh had contacted him. She asked the lawyer to send a letter to John O'Brien, alleging that he had assaulted her. Mr. O'Herlihy also sent a letter to Meg's bank manager seeking the title deeds to the family home and to have O'Brien's interest in the home transferred into Meg's name. On the 26th of September, the bank manager, Michael Lauhoff, said he had received a phone call from Ms. Walsh asking about making a change to the mortgage to have the house transferred to her name only. Then, on the 27th of September, Ms. Walsh had contacted her accountant, Barbara Drohan. Ms. Drohan said that Meg had asked her to prepare a statement of her earnings and have it sent to her. The court also heard from an insurance investment manager, Declan Maher. He had been contacted by Meg Walsh in late September because she was arranging to have the mortgage on her house transferred solely into her name and therefore needed to adjust her insurance cover. Mr. Maher said that there were a few forms to fill out and sent them to her in the post, but the forms were never returned. Mr. Maher then heard that Meg went missing on the radio in early October. After this, evidence was heard from Detective Garda Jerry Whelan. He and a colleague had met with Mr. O'Brien on the day Meg was reported missing. They spoke with the defendant while he was at work, and the detective said that O'Brien appeared nervous. He was sweating a lot and kept wetting his lips with his tongue. O'Brien was asked why he hadn't reported his wife missing, and he told the guarder that Meg had gone off before and had stayed in a hotel that time. 
The Gardee and O'Brien had then gone to the house at Ballinakill Downs, and O'Brien had allowed them to look around. Everything appeared in order, but according to the detective Garda, Mr. O'Brien was incredibly nervous. They noted his hands were shaking, and he got aggressive when he had trouble opening up the shed and gave the padlock what the Garda described as belts. O'Brien became even more anxious when the Gardee looked around the utility room. Detective Garda Whelan said he got the impression that the defendant didn't want them there, but everything in the house seemed to be in order. There was some rolled-up carpet beside the bin outside, but that was it. After this, O'Brien went with the guards to Waterford Station to make a statement. Detective Garda Whelan gave the details of this to the court. O'Brien had outlined being out in the Woodlands Hotel with Meg and meeting up with Mr. Walsh and so on. After witnessing the kiss incident, O'Brien had asked Meg why she'd done that, and according to O'Brien, Meg had told him that he didn't pay her enough attention. They'd slept in separate rooms that night. The defendant told the guardee that he'd gotten up on the first at around 1pm and had gone out, taking the car. When he got home at 5pm, he had spoken to Meg once more, asking again why she'd kissed Owen Walsh. Meg had told O'Brien that he'd driven her to it. O'Brien then had turned on the TV and he heard Meg leave the house at half past eight. Professor Mary Cassidy gave evidence on Friday the 18th. During the post-mortem, she concluded that Meg Walsh had died of blunt force trauma to the head. She had suffered at least two heavy blows to the top of her head with an instrument. Mary Cassidy told the court that she could not say whether a crook lock used to immobilise a steering wheel of a car which was given to her by the guardee to examine, could have been used in the course of the attack. A crook lock had been found in O'Brien's bin by guardee. Injuries to the shoulders and arms were also noted on Meg's body, which Dr. Cassidy told the court were consistent with defensive wounds. The chief state pathologist noted that Meg's body had been in the water for several days when it was discovered, and she had found fluid in Meg's lungs during the post-mortem. She said that this was suggestive of drowning, but that that was not something she could be certain of. Professor Cassidy said it was possible that Meg had still been alive when she was put into the river, but also noted that the extent of the injuries to her head were such that she would not have survived them. Later, on the 18th of April, Inspector John Hunt gave evidence. He said he'd spoken with O'Brien on the 4th of October and asked him to make a statement about Meg's disappearance. He was looking for information about their lives, relationship, and general background information. After the interview had been going on for a while, Inspector Hunt was in a position that he needed to caution O'Brien. This was due to the fact that O'Brien had made admissions in relation to an assault on Meg. John O'Brien had told Inspector Hunt that the marriage had been relatively uneventful. They had just run-of-the-mill petty arguments, though money was a particular problem between the two of them. O'Brien said Meg spent money and drank a lot. She had run up €24,000 worth of credit card debt, and after her disappearance, O'Brien had been told she had taken out a credit union loan of €24,000. But O'Brien had then told Inspector Hunt about an incident which had led to his cautioning. He said that a fight had occurred after he and Meg had been out drinking together, and when they got home, 
Meg started shouting at him. O'Brien said he was going to go to bed, and he said Meg had then grabbed him. At that point, he said he'd lost it and had hit Meg on the head and put his hand over her mouth. She'd run down the stairs and to the window in the dining room, and O'Brien admitted that he'd pulled her shoulder away from the window. O'Brien told the inspector that eventually Meg had calmed down, and they'd gone to bed together. But Meg still went to the guardie. O'Brien told Inspector Hunt that he'd not been happy about that, or the fact she'd told her boss. He pleaded for forgiveness and said it would never happen again. Meg had told him to prove it, and so he'd agreed to put the deed of the house in her name. Inspector Hunt continued that O'Brien had told him Meg had offered the defendant €150,000 to leave about a week before she went missing, but O'Brien hadn't wanted to go. He told Meg he loved her and wanted to work things out. They were trying to mend their relationship, and O'Brien said he thought that they were getting back on track when they'd gone out for drinks at the hotel together on the 30th. Inspector Hunt also told the court that on the 5th of October, he'd gotten a call from the defendant. O'Brien asked whether Meg's car had been found, but didn't ask Gardee if they'd found Meg. Inspector Hunt thought that it was odd. The witness had been one of four detectives present to arrest O'Brien on the 20th of October. During searches of O'Brien and Meg's home, Inspector Hunt had noted that the dial on the washing machine was turned up to 90 degrees, and there was a stain on an upturned mattress. The stain had been cut out of the mattress by forensic experts and sent for examination. Inspector Hunt's evidence continued the following week in court, when he was cross-examined by O'Brien's defence counsel. During his interview with the defendant, Inspector Hunt had put it to O'Brien that on the day his wife was reported missing, rather than driving around looking for his wife, as he had told Gardy he had done, his phone had pinged a mobile phone mast near to where Meg's car had been left. O'Brien's response to this had been that the local mast must not have been working or something. The accused also admitted that he had sat outside the home of Owen Walsh for 20 to 30 minutes that day, the 2nd of October. O'Brien had told Inspector Hunt that he had a conversation with Meg in the early evening on the 1st, the last time he'd spoken with his wife before she disappeared. O'Brien had even listed the programs that he'd watched on TV that evening, the news, followed by Soaps, Emmerdale and Coronation Street. But when Hunt showed the defendant CCTV from the city, showing O'Brien standing on the banks of the River Shore at the time he said he'd been home and watching TV, O'Brien had said he had simply got his times wrong and had forgotten to mention that he had stopped in the town before returning home from Tremor. Inspector Hunt told the court that he had initially taken O'Brien's account of the evening at face value, but as evidence emerged, it contradicted what he'd been told at every turn. This included O'Brien's story about how he had ended up with a crooklock in his bin. Paddy McCarthy asked was it not the case that his client had cooperated with Gardie and had given a statement voluntarily. Inspector Hunt responded, quote, If you're saying he was helpful, I'm disagreeing with that. He gave me a statement that was full of lies, end quote. Then Garda John Shorthall told the court that he had searched Meg's desk and personal belongings in her office at Meadowcourt Homes. He had found documents related to three upcoming holidays that Meg had planned with John O'Brien, 
He'd also found copies of important documents like marriage certificates and a deed of separation. There was correspondence relating to the transfer of the ownership of the property at Ballinakill Downs and a calling card from Garda Garavan, who Meg had spoken to at Waterford Garda Station. Detective Garda Declan O'Brien then gave evidence of his interview with the defendant. He had put it to John O'Brien that he had assaulted and killed Meg, and then disposed of her body. O'Brien had denied this, saying he loved and supported his wife. John O'Brien said he had taken Meg's key and spare key away from her on the night of the argument on the 20th of September because she was quote-unquote hysterical. But he had given them back the following day. O'Brien told the Garda that Meg must have then put her main keys into a pint jug that was used to store spare keys in the house. During the interview, the defendant denied contemplating jumping into the shore himself at the time he was caught on the keys on CCTV, not far from where Meg's body would later be recovered. Nor had he been thinking about where Meg's body might wash up, because he said he hadn't known she was in the river. But, according to Detective O'Brien, John did say he knew that bodies would float in water after a week or ten days. The detective had also asked if stains on a crooklock found by Gardie were Meg's blood, and put it to the defendant that he'd killed Meg to take back control of his life. Again, John O'Brien denied this. He also denied taking Meg's wedding ring and putting it in an ashtray in the house. In cross-examination, Paddy McCarthy had asked the detective, was it not likely that Meg had simply left the rings behind her when she went out on Sunday night? but Garda O'Brien insisted that Meg was not known for leaving the house without her jewellery on her. In this interview, it had also been pointed out to John O'Brien that he had said that he had gone straight home from work on Tuesday, but that his house alarm had not been deactivated until 11 minutes past 10, seven minutes after Meg's car had been left at the Uluru car park. O'Brien then said that he had simply forgotten that that night he'd gone for a walk to get a bit of air before returning home. Crime scene examiner Detective Garda Brian Barry told the court that he had found bloodstains in the boot of Meg's car, on the driver's seat, the outside door pillar on the driver's side, and on the back bumper of the driver's side. Garda Alan White appeared back in the stand the following day, where he brought the jury through CCTV collected from throughout Waterford City. He pointed out a black Mazda car, which belonged to John O'Brien, making its way around Waterford in the days after Meg went missing. The following day, the jury were walked through 110 clips of CCTV taken from around Waterford, particularly focusing on the cars owned by Meg Walsh and John O'Brien and movements around the Uluru car park and a Tesco supermarket parking lot. Gardie had also reviewed CCTV from locations that Owen Walsh reported having visited on October 1st and 2nd, his workplace at Waterford Docks, the Tesco supermarket, and a convenience shop. Mr Walsh's movements were in line with what he had reported to the Gardie in his statements. The implication from the various clips was that O'Brien had left the Mitsubishi at the Uluru car park, walked to the nearby Tesco, got into his own car, which he'd left there, and then driven home, something O'Brien denied. 
As the trial entered its third week, the court heard from Michael Burlington, a forensic scientist. He had examined a number of samples taken from the boot of Meg's car. A mixed profile had been returned from an area of hardboard around the spare tyre, which had areas of both visible blood staining and no staining. On other areas where there was no staining, Mr. Burlington had developed profiles that matched both Meg Walsh and the defendant, John O'Brien. There were also a number of partial profiles that remained unidentified, developed from similar samples that had been taken. Mr. Burlington agreed with the defence counsel that these unidentified samples were not suspicious. Marcy Lee Gorman from Forensic Science Laboratory also testified about forensics in the case and said that there was heavy blood staining discovered on a mat from a Mitsubishi Charisma which matched Meg Walsh's DNA profile. Spots of Meg's blood were also found on a piece of spare wheel cover, which had been removed from the car and dumped in a nearby housing estate. Blood found both inside and outside the car also matched Meg's DNA profile. Ms. Gorman said that there had been attempts to wipe away the blood in some places. When cross-examined by Mr. McCarthy for the defence, Ms. Gorman agreed that no blood had been found in the house or shed, at the home in Ballinakill Downs. On the 12th day of the trial, Tuesday the 29th of April, one of John O'Brien's co-workers gave evidence. Mr Kevin Barry told the court that on the 3rd of October 2006, he had had a conversation with the defendant about his wife's disappearance. According to Mr. Barry, O'Brien was nervous and his hands were shaking. Along with describing the events of what had occurred after their night out in the Woodlands Hotel, O'Brien had detailed that he had just found out that Meg had accrued significant debts he had been unaware of, and he'd learned that the mortgage payment had been missed. On Wednesday, Eugene Aylward, a man who lived in the Sycamores estate, where a piece of hardboard from the boot of the Mitsubishi was found, told the court that he had seen the accused walking in the estate two days after the car was found abandoned. Mr Aylward knew John O'Brien to see from socialising in the Woodlands Hotel. That piece of hardboard had been matched to a gap in the boot of Meg's car. Mr Aylward was insistent that he had been correct in this sighting when cross-examined by Paddy McCarthy Senior Counsel for the Defence. Garda Sergeant Patrick Murphy had discovered both this piece of hardboard and a piece of car mat from Meg's Mitsubishi. He had been tasked to search a laneway at the entrance to the Sycamore Estate on the 8th of October. At that time, he had found a piece of car mat which was stained with blood and sand. On the 10th, he searched the same area and only three or four feet from where he had discovered the piece of mat, he found the piece of hardboard. It had been cut, with the sergeant saying it looked as if it had been scored with a knife and then snapped. Lieutenant Commander Eddie Mulligan of the Waterford Naval Reserve then gave his expert opinion on the currents in Waterford Harbour and the River Shore. At the time of Meg's death, the tides had been relatively high, and he identified a number of locations where it seemed possible Meg's body had entered the water. It was his experience that bodies did not travel far after being put into the river. He likened their initial sinking to going down like a sack of potatoes. 
He said he didn't think it likely that the body had travelled more than a kilometre from the initial dump site. Once Meg's body re-emerged, it would have been, and was, spotted very quickly, given the proximity of the city and the extensive searches that were taking place there. Another witness, Caroline O'Connor, testified that she had seen a silver car parked near the gate into the waterworks at Bell Lake on the Dunmore Road sometime between half eight and nine o'clock in the evening on the 1st of October. She had been surprised to see the car parked there in the dark. The interior light was on and the door nearest the verge was open. She nearly stopped because she thought something must be wrong but Ms. O'Connor hadn't seen anyone, so she kept driving. Eddie Gleason, an employee of the O2 mobile phone network, told the court that after examining the records of Meg's phone, he determined that the last activity on it was at 1.59pm on the 1st of October, and it had pinged the tower closest to her home at Blenheim Hill. A call placed just after 7pm by a friend to Meg's phone had not gone through, because by this stage the network could not connect to the phone. Either the battery was dead or the phone was otherwise rendered unusable. Another O2 engineer, Ivan O'Flynn, examined records associated with John O'Brien's phone. All of the activity on John's phone on the 2nd of October, Monday evening, had been routed through the Cove Centre Mass, which was near the Uluru car park. An expert in car keys explained to the court that keys for modern cars are perhaps a bit more complex than one would initially think. Each key has a chip and a specific code to unlock an individual car. In order to get a new key fob for a car, the code and chip need to be entirely replaced. It's a more complicated matter than simply making a copy, and can take some time, involves a level of expense, and would make any old key unable to remotely lock or unlock your car. Both of the keys for Meg's Mitsubishi were found in a glass in the Ballinakill house during Garda searches, However, O'Brien's defence established that it was possible to clone remote locking fobs, and there was no way to determine if Meg had had a third fob made at some point. On Friday, Detective Garda Anthony Pettit gave evidence regarding Meg Walsh's finances. He had been asked to do this to determine what had been done with money given to her by other employees in the course of her work as an office manager. The money was lodged with her as part of a Christmas savings scheme, but she had been depositing this money into her personal account with her wages. It was determined that she intended to pay the money out by making cash withdrawals on her credit card. The detective noted that Meg didn't tend to use cash and preferred the use of her credit cards in general. It was, perhaps, not the most advisable way to deal with this money, particularly given Meg's debt, but it was not a case of theft. The money had been paid to the other employees by Meg's brother James in the end, as there was no access to her credit cards after her death, and the family didn't want to inconvenience Meg's friends and colleagues who had helped search for her and had supported the family through a difficult period of time. The prosecution's case closed quickly then, playing the very beginning of John O'Brien's first interview with Gardee, only the portion that confirmed his name and date of birth, and that he knew why he had been arrested. 
Friday afternoon in court two came to a close with an application by the defense to withdraw the case against Mr. O'Brien. The jury were informed that they would not be required until later the following week. That application was heard and dismissed, and the trial resumed on its 16th day on Tuesday the 6th of May. John O'Brien took the stand in his own defense. He repeated his story about the early hours of Sunday morning. O'Brien had last seen his wife at around 10 minutes to 6 on the evening of October 1st. He said he had had, quote, no hand, act or part in Meg's murder. He said he had not been in the Sycamore estate area where Mr. Aylward had told the court he'd seen the accused. On cross-examination, O'Brien admitted that he hadn't told the guardie everything when they first spoke, and that there were events and circumstances he hadn't mentioned or had forgotten. O'Brien said that he had no idea that the investigation would end up in a murder inquiry, that he was expecting Meg to come home. He said that the account he had given to Gardee was only out by about 40 to 50 minutes. The defendant said he often put items into the back of his wife's car, which could explain the presence of his DNA there. He had been in the Tesco car park on the evening of the 2nd of October because he was watching Owen Walsh's house to see if Meg had gone there. He had not been driving the Charisma, which was found later that evening. John O'Brien denied that he had any motive whatsoever to kill his wife and said he was aware of the transfer of the deed of the house into Meg's sole name. Again, he said he had done this to prove that he would not get violent with her again. The final witness for the defence was Samantha Raincock. She told the court that it was possible O'Brien's phone had pinged the tower cell it did when he was at the Waterford Castle roundabout, which was where O'Brien asserted he was at the time. She agreed that that mast also covered the Uluru car park. Closing speeches were made on Wednesday the 7th of May. Dominic McGinn gave the statement on behalf of the prosecution. He said the only person with all the answers as to what exactly happened to Meg Walsh was her murderer. Despite the best efforts of the investigating guardie, they had been unable to locate the precise place or determine the precise time of Meg's death. Whoever had attacked Meg had intended to either cause her serious harm or kill her, and all the evidence in the case pointed to Meg's husband, the accused, John O'Brien. The jury needed to put aside sympathy or emotion and look at all the evidence taken together. The accused had been evasive and had been less than helpful when dealing with the guardie. He had, of course, allowed Gardean to search the house, knowing that it was not the scene of the crime. But the car, that was the real crime scene. Mr. McGinn pointed out that O'Brien's time during the crucial periods of Sunday and Monday evenings when the car was moved was mostly unaccounted for. Paddy McCarthy for the defence said that the state's case required the jury to ignore their duty to presume Mr. O'Brien innocent. There was no forensic evidence in the house or the car which indicated that O'Brien had been involved in Meg's murder. His client's DNA was present in the car. Of course it was. It was his wife's car. There was nothing to say that O'Brien's DNA could only be present in the boot of the car because he'd removed pieces of the carpet and the hardboard from it. 
McCarthy also said that some of the sightings of the silver Mitsubishi Charisma coincided with the time when Mr. O'Brien was speaking with the police. McCarthy asked the jury to acquit Mr. O'Brien. On Thursday, the 8th of May, Mr. Justice Barry White delivered his instructions to the jury, saying that they must be cold, clinical, and analytical in making their decision, and reminding them of the presumption of innocence. He continued saying, quote, That presumption of innocence must be real. It must be meaningful. It is not simply some hackneyed old phrase that you pay lip service to. End quote. The onus of proof was on the prosecution and the jury had to consider whether the inconsistencies in the statements and evidence given by the defendant may have innocent explanations. He also warned against the risk of incorrect identification by eyewitnesses. That day, the jury deliberated for three hours and fifteen minutes, before being sent to a hotel for the night. At a quarter to one on Friday the 9th of May, the jury returned with their verdict. After five hours of deliberation, the seven women and five men found John O'Brien not guilty of the murder of his wife, Meg Walsh. Sasha, Meg's daughter, broke down in tears as the verdict was read. Her uncle James consoled her. Other friends and family also openly wept in the court as the verdict was read out. Two of the female jurors cried when the registrar announced the decision. Others in the courtroom gasped. John O'Brien displayed no emotion until the jury were led from the courtroom, when he let out an exhale of breath. His solicitor, Fanola Cronin, read a statement on behalf of John O'Brien and his family on the steps of the forecourt. They thanked the jury and asked the media to respect their privacy and allow them time to grieve for Meg and for John's father, who had passed away the year before. James Walsh also delivered a statement outside the court. He said, quote, We are numbed and devastated by this. We are at a loss as to why it would happen to us. Meg lived through a terrible ordeal. She kept her terrible difficulties to herself. All we can do is depend on the memories we have of Meg, a great mother and a terrific woman, to keep us going. As you are aware, this is an extremely difficult time, and we would ask you to respect our privacy. End quote. It emerged after the trial that a letter written by Meg had been deemed inadmissible by Mr. Justice White, as it was considered too prejudicial. Dervil MacDonnell wrote in the Irish Independent that the letter, which was not addressed to anyone and had not been sent, outlined allegations made by Meg that her husband had threatened to kill her. The incident outlined in the letter was similar to what O'Brien had described to Inspector Hunt in his statement. However, Meg's retelling of the alleged incident was more violent. She described having her hair pulled, being pushed down the stairs, being caught by the throat and hit and kicked. At one point, Meg wrote, she had made her peace with God and alleged she told her husband that he could go ahead and kill her. A senior investigator told the Irish Independent, quote, We didn't adopt a narrow focus, and several people were listed as possible suspects at the beginning. A lot of them wouldn't have known they were suspects. We discreetly checked on their movements and gradually whittled down the list, end quote. 
Shane Phelan reported in the paper that the investigation was over and Gardy had no plans to reopen the case into Meg's murder. On Tuesday the 13th of May, the Evening Herald published photos taken on April 30th outside of the four courts after proceedings had adjourned for the day. It was of John O'Brien throwing a punch at press photographer Paddy Cummins. O'Brien had lunged at the photographer and grabbed at the strap of his camera. Mr. Cummins managed to turn himself away in time and told the paper it was only after the incident that he learned Mr. O'Brien had once held a black belt in Taekwondo. He later lodged a complaint of assault with the Gardee. By the second week in May, the media were told that Meg's family were seeking legal advice in relation to taking a civil action against John O'Brien, seeking damages arising from distress caused by O'Brien's alleged treatment of Meg. After consulting with solicitors, however, the family determined that the cost of taking a civil action would be too high. They weren't in a position to proceed. Sasha told the Evening Herald, quote, If we don't keep it going, people are just going to forget. But at the end of the day, we're only normal people with normal lives. And the thought of this happening to us, you know, it just doesn't happen. It's just crazy. End quote. A few weeks later, the Irish Independent reported that vandals had smashed windows at the Ballinakill home where John O'Brien continued to live. It was the second such incident to occur, and O'Brien was reported as having told neighbours he might need to consider moving abroad if such attacks continued. He had only recently returned to the house after staying with family nearby in Waterford in the wake of his acquittal. At the inquest into Meg's death in November of 2008, James Walsh had said, quote, I would like to think that whoever is responsible, at some stage, their conscience might just get at them. Maybe we can appeal to their better nature and say, look, maybe it's never too late. It's a long road without a turn. Who knows, maybe someday there will be justice done to some degree, at some stage. That's all we can hope for, end quote. Sasha ended up suing her former stepfather in the end, but it was for a share of her mother's property, as Meg had died intestate. She brought a case against O'Brien in the circuit court and relied on his own testimony in his criminal trial, admitting that he had agreed to the transfer of sole ownership of the home to Meg before she died. In April of 2011, a settlement was reached between the two, granting Sasha a share of her mother's estate. However, that arrangement falls very short of justice in this case. Gardy never did further their investigation into Meg's death, no murder weapon was ever found, nor was the scene of Meg's death or the location where she was put into the river. And though the investigation has an end, the story of Meg Walsh's death still does not have one. As Sasha told the Evening Herald in 2008, we just want closure. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Claire, Colette Pollan, Jill Brady, Priscilla Sheehan, Elizabeth Addington, Anne O'Donovan, Ashley Leitner, Eva McDonnell, Brian Eustace, Ruth, and Simon Chiesty. Thanks so much to everyone who has signed up and to everyone who continues to support the show. It's hugely important to keep Mens Rea going 
And along with my undying love for helping out, you get ad-free and bonus episodes, as well as nifty merch. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Thanks also to our sponsors for this week, Manscaped. Remember, supporting our sponsors supports this show. So check them out in the show notes and get yourself a discount while you're at it. Our theme music is Quinn's song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This episode was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I'm having a kitten situation up here. Could you come up and remove it, please? Never mind. Uh.